20 square box. Blocks. Blocks. 20 square blocks. Square. Square. Roland Rocicelli was made for a life in theatre. With a career spanning over 50 years, he's worked on Broadway, The West End, with legends like Ingrid Bergman and Debbie Reynolds. Among many things, he's an actor, director, playwright, and frankly, a very charming man. At the moment, John Frost from now Crossroads Live, which used to be the Gordon Frost organisation, is in London with a play that I wrote called Letters from the Heart, which has been 11 years in the writing. Getting a play right is very difficult. I, I sometimes think about the number of occasions in a rehearsal room when I've said, who wrote this load of horse manure? <laughs> and I can still hear Wendy Hughes once in a rehearsal. It was a play called uh, Some of My Best Friends Are Women, the beautiful, beautiful Wendy Hughes who died far too young. But she stopped in the middle of the rehearsal and said, I can't say this shit. Who wrote it? And from the auditorium, a little voice was heard to say, I did Well, it was Therese Raddick, who was married to Leonard Raddick, the, the age critic. And Wendy said, oh, well, too bad. I'm sorry you're here, but it's just a load of nonsense and I can't say it. But you realise how difficult it is to write a play. It really is awfully difficult. Um, and we've had so many workshops. But now I think the play is at a stage where it's ready to get onto the rehearsal room floor and to become a play. And hopefully from here it'll go from here. The plan is from here to London, then London to New York. This is not your first play? No, no. I've written a number of plays. Um, I wrote the, one of the first that I wrote was a thing called and Now You Can Eat, Now You Can Eat Father Christmas, which was based on my mother. I played myself and some 30 other characters, not with a, wig or rubber boobs or any of that. I just did it with voices. And so all the other people were simply voices. Nice. And it was hugely successful. We did it at, um, I did it first at the Athenaeum in Melbourne, then moved it to Chapel of Chapel. And I think it ended up playing for about 16 weeks in Melbourne, which was, which was nice. It's a one man show. And it worked very well. I remember Sam Newman came to see it and Sam and I had been on the footy show for 10 years together with Ed McGuire. And uh, Sam came to see it, and I came out after the performance, and and he was sort of staring. I said, "What's wrong with you?" And he said, "Well, I didn't know you could do all that." And I said, <laughs> "Do all what, Sam?" He said, "Well, he said I thought you were going to sit on a stool and tell funny stories." I said, "Oh, did you?" Um, so it and it engaged Sam's curiosity, and he came to see it again. Then when I moved it from one theatre to another, he said, "I'm going to come and see." I said, oh, "No, don't, don't, don't do that." He said, "No." I want to see it. I, he said, I'm fascinated by the whole sort of story of your mother. And he knew my mother. Um, she came to live with me from Western Australia in South Yarra when I was living there. Well, I'd lived there for 35 years. Um, and he met her, obviously, as a consequence. So that was, that was one of the first pieces that I ever wrote, Now You Can Eat Father Christmas. Did Father Christmas appear in that? Yes, he did. He was a little statue that went on a Christmas cake. We had this little father, sugar father Christmas, which used to every year sit on the top of the Christmas cake, which Biria made. And every year there was this same pantomime. 
it, once the cake had been eaten and Father Christmas was there, and he was made of sugar, and I used to say, Mom, can I eat Father Christmas? No, you cannot eat Father Christmas. Now put him back in the kitchenette where he belongs and leave him there. And this went on for years as I was growing up, and I was never allowed to eat Father Christmas. The same one every year. Oh, yes, oh, yes. That's why I wasn't allowed to eat him, because he was, he was a little ornament, you know, and he went on the top of the Christmas cake. I think we got him in 1952, I was about five, and we bought him from the chemist in, I lived in twin towns in the goldfields in Western Australia, and we bought this little sugar Father Christmas from Alan Hutchinson, the chemist, and I think he cost a shilling, which was 10 cents. And I was looking at it in the, in, it was in the window, and I was absolutely mesmerized by it. And, uh, this is amazing. and so, she said, would yeah. you like it? And I said, yes. And so she bought it for me. Oh, she actually bought it for you Oh, as she well. bought it for me, but then wouldn't right. let me eat it. <laughs> One day this parcel, little box arrived, a parcel arrived from, and in it was this Father Christmas. And he was now sort of very, this was 55 or 60 years later. And there was a note from my mother and Biria had said, now you can eat Father Christmas. So you were born in the goldfields. Mm -hmm. So you've obviously come a long way from the goldfields. A very long way. Whereabouts was this town exactly? Western Australia? 150 miles northeast of Kalgoorlie on the edge of the great Victoria Desert. Rough? No, not particularly, no. Um, it was 60% Italian, 20% Yugoslav and other Europeans, and 20% British. So it was, to all intents and purposes, a European village. Hmm. Um, and I grew up with all of that European food. There were 28 nationalities working on the mine. So I grew up with the sound of 28 other languages ringing in my ears. And and these people were, you know, they, they'd come here after the war, many of them. They were refugees and displaced persons, and Europe was ravaged by the war of that madman. And so they just moved. They, they, Australia was looking for immigrants, and, and it was populate or perish, as, as they were saying at the time. And so these people arrived in shiploads, and mostly they got off in Fremantle because they thought, we've had enough of it, and so... Western Australia became this sort of melting pot, this potpourri of wonderful people. So how did you get from there to... Where did the passion come into playwriting then? Well, there were all sorts of influences. I mean, if you, if you think about growing up with 28 nationalities in your life, mm -hmm. then you're influenced by a whole lot of European uh, traditions, obviously. And if you're the, there was the ABC radio in those days, which was very different from ABC radio today. The ABC used to broadcast niche programming and all sorts of programs. And there were, for example, there was a program called the Village Glee Club, the theme song of which was to hear again when lights are low, the voice in the old village choir. And that was a, and, and that would come on and Biri would say, come on, your favorite programs on. And uh, I was, I was fascinated by broadcasting. So then I went and auditioned for the ABC. And in those days, to work at the ABC, you had to have a working knowledge of five languages, three, Whoa. preferably five. Okay. And uh, right. my Latin, French and Italian were fine, but my Russian, Polish and German were not very good. So they sent me away and said, come back in three months. You'll get a job eventually, but come back in three months and audition again. 
And eventually I passed and I was a cadet and you were taught how to be an announcer so that you didn't go on air and you didn't um and ah and you didn't do make all of those terrible mistakes, no mispronunciations. In those days, if you mispronounced a word as according to the BBC's received pronunciations, um, you were taken off the air because that was unacceptable and you'd be sent back to the schoolroom to start all over again. And that's why ABC announcers were were so favoured by commercial television as newsreaders and as announcers. I'm still a good newsreader and I, I can't listen for the most part to the news being read by half the... They sing it up. Da-da-di-da-di-da, da-da-di-da-di-da, da-da-di-da-di-da. It drives me spare. Do you think it's a little harder to get a job? in the ABC now or a bit easier? Oh, I'd say easier. They're some of the most untalented people I've ever heard on here at the ABC. Awful announcements. How many do you think know six languages? None, I would say none. Well, you hear them. I mean, they, they, they talk about the Tour de France. Well, either it's the, 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 the French Tour or the Tour de France. Which do you want it to be? Tour de France. I mean, I, you, I, I, I hear it all the time. I sent Kerry O'Brien an email I heard him on air talking about imbroglio. It's not that difficult. It's, some of, we're not all linguistically dyslexic. You may be. You, you, you obviously don't even speak English all that well. It's imbroglio. I never heard back, of course. But I fire off missives to people all the time saying, please, will you stop with the mispronunciations? Now they, it's not called a mispronunciation. It's called a mispronunciation. So if you're mispronouncing mispronunciation, what bloody chance do you have? None, I would say. Well, what's the one that really gets under your skin? Oh, there are so many. I mean, William, million, million. Australia. Australia. Oh, Australia. <laughs> and, they, and they look at names like Zegna. Z-E-G-N-A. They call it Zegna. Putin. Mr. Putin, his name is Putin. It's not difficult. Putin. <laughs> Putin. I mean, it's not rocket science. Eventually, I left the ABC because I, I enjoyed being an announcer but I saw opportunities within the theatre that were going to be greater than being an announcer with the ABC. Was that professional theatre? Oh, you, yes. Right, so you started banging into professional theatre. What was your first role? Uh, it was a play called The Persecution and Murder of Marat as performed by the inmates of Sarinton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade. It was a piece by Peter Weiss written in rhyming couplets and I played Voltaire. Then I came, when I was in Sydney, I came to Sydney and, and I joined a repertory company, which was three weekly rep. So we were doing a play every three weeks. Jeez. And I did that for a while. And then Harry and Miller advertised for a general factotum. Yes. I was about 22 or something. You had to be younger than 23, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine to work for Harry and Miller in those days was really quite something. And he advertised and there were hundreds of applicants. And we had these interviews and I went along and then we were called back and called back. And eventually he gave me the job out of all of these young men that he'd seen. So that took me into the original Hair Superstar Boys in the Band Rocky Horror Show and a whole – he was bringing stars here in those days to do plays. Like, you do, you're, so you're doing musicals? 
Hmm. Yes, well, I'd, I'd done musicals before well, okay. because I'd work, I'd trained as a dancer anyway. While I was studying, I realised you needed to be able well, to dance. So, dancer, so I also. went off to the classical. Yes, Kira Bushlov, Madame Bushlov, who was one of the first Russians. She right. she came here and then ended up in uh, um, in Western Australia. And Madame Bushlov had her ballet school, and so I went and trained Russian with her. I guess I shouldn't be too surprised because when you're working in theatre, you're going to do. I should say dancing. I was going to say dancing, but it is I'll, dancing. It's <laughs> long hours, all yes. long hours. Yeah. <laughs> so you're doing you're doing dancing. Yes, you're writing plays. You're, you're acting as well. But this is all part of the whole. The playwriting came much, much, much okay. later. I had neither the wit nor the wisdom to write back then. I was too busy just doing and wanting to get on and going, you know, going away and working and doing plays and and you know. Boys in the Band was the most extraordinary play. It was a play about a group of homosexuals having a birthday party and two of them kissed on stage and we'd wait every night and you'd hear boom, 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 boom as the seats flipped up and people left the theatre. They were so wow. shocked by the, 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 with all of this and the, the, the police came and they... The police? Oh, oh, it was extraordinary. We close... Hang on, you, you got closed down. Oh, they tried to close us down. Oh, yes, and taken to court. John Crummel and Charles Little, um, they were both charged with public obscenities because there, there were lines in the play that people had to say. I remember I was in Newcastle and the vice squad came to visit me. I was 21 or 22. I was really young. And they said, uh, who's in charge here? And I said, I am. And they said, right, I well... Now, we came last night and we heard this line, who do you have to fuck to get a cup of coffee around here? We think that should be changed. I said, oh, do you? To what? And they said, well, we think it would be better if you said, who do you have to suck to get a cup of coffee around here? I said, I don't think we'll be changing it to that. I'd have to get the playwright's permission. And it was left at that and nothing happened. I, I... Given that homosexuality was illegal at this stage, we're talking you went to jail for being homosexual. It was against the law. You were illegal. And I cannot believe that I had the temerity to stand up to five or six members of the vice squad aged. It's a wonder I wasn't clapped in irons and put into jail. The vice squad? We don't have them anymore, do we? No, no. It's why the Royal Court in London was established, because the, the, the Lord Chamberlain's office had to read every play. And if the Lord Chamberlain, this sort of terribly kind of, you know, what, 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 one of those, um, would read a play, and if he didn't like it, he'd say, no, no, cut that, cut that. One man making decisions about, you know, whether Tennessee Williams should cut lines out of his plays because some silly old English fart didn't think it was acceptable. Wow. And that's what you were dealing with. It was very difficult. But we fought against it. Yes. I mean, the, the actors rose up and other people, and the community. The, there were members of the community who were, you know, not everybody out there is intellectually concussed. And they, 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 were, they were offended by this one man. And here the same. Um, the, the, oh, Arthur Ryler was the chief secretary in the Liberal government in Victoria, and he instituted the charges against boys in the band. And both Charles Little and John Crummel were convicted. Uh, of obscenity in a public place or something, but it didn't stop the it didn't stop the play. the The court decided that the play could go on, but it was a very controversial time, and you were dealing with with these sort of people constantly. Sir Arthur Ryler had a stash of pornography or adult 
material in his desk drawers, which he used to show to the journalists. Unusual, isn't it? So, so he's quite happy to show the material. Dreadful man. And yet he's censoring people for public obscenity. Oh, I think, you know, the hypocrisy those days, it's still around, but the hypocrisy of government then was quite extraordinary. Now, every year you do a Christmas performance, or at least you have the last few years. What What, what is About that 12 one? 12 years. Carol's in the cathedral. Yes. At St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, Federation Square Corner, is yes, that right? Yes, that's yep. the one, yes. Um, the Anglican one. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, uh, I think it's probably the best Christmas performance. They, we do three. It's the premiere Christmas performance in, in Melbourne. I do a couple of readings, but I also write a homily, which is my thoughts on all sorts of things. And this year I thought, because I've done it for 12 years and I've just about run out of things to say, you know, there comes a point where you think I have nothing more to say. But then this year I thought, it's interesting, it's been a, a fascinating year, the Queen died. And every year, of course, there is the Queen's Christmas message and there has been. And it's something that I've always listened to. I heard the first one in 1957 and I, I don't remember anything of the broadcast, but I do remember I was, it was Christmas morning and I was home on my own for whatever reason. And the, the wireless was on and this, vo I heard the national anthem and then this voice. Mm. And I knew intuitively it was the Queen. And I've listened to her Christmas broadcasts over the years. Paradoxically, in terms of personality, we know very little about the Queen. She never, she's the most unknown famous person in the world, or was the most unknown. We don't know what the Queen thought about anything. You can see the Netflix show, they'll, they'll show Oh, that'll, you. yes, that, yes, yes, of course. I'd forgotten that. Um, and, but if you go back through her Christmas broadcast, there is this constant thing about service and duty and caring for other people. So I've taken some of the best bits out of her speeches and put them together, and I'm going to use that as the homily I'd forgotten about it, and it does give me a whole different perspective on what she said over the years. But the theme all the way through was the same, from the beginning to the end. What's the theme? Service and faith and fellow man and, and caring about other people and that we really only have each other. And that's what we really should be caring. People don't anymore. We live in a, in a society now which, where success is measured by an accumulation of wealth. And that's really sad, I think. In 1952, in the first of her Christmas broadcasts, the Queen said, Let us set out to build a truer knowledge of ourselves and our fellow men, to work for tolerance and understanding among the nations, and to use the tremendous forces of science and learning for the betterment of man's lot upon this earth. If we can do these three things with courage, with generosity, and with humility, then surely we shall achieve that peace on earth, goodwill toward men, which is the eternal message of Christmas and the desire of us all. In her final Christmas message, the Queen said, I'm sure someone somewhere today will remark that Christmas is a time for children. It's an engaging truth, but only half the story. Perhaps it's truer to say that Christmas can speak to the child within us all. 
Adults, when weighed down with worries, sometimes fail to see the joys in simple things where children do not. They teach us all a lesson, just as the Christmas story does, that in the birth of a child, there is a new dawn with endless potential. It is this simplicity of the Christmas story that makes it so universally appealing. Let the light of Christmas and the spirit of selflessness, love and above all hope guide us in the times ahead. Her Majesty concluded, it is in that spirit I wish you all a very happy Christmas. Happy Christmas to you all. Thank you for listening to 20 Square Blocks. If you like the show, do the thing that podcasts ask you to do. Subscribe, like, review, and most importantly, tell someone you know. Thanks to my guest, Roland Roccicelli, who lives five blocks to the west of me. Original music for the podcast by Ryan Goodwin. Check out his other music at virtuallyryan.com. Additional material written by Anne Murison. Editing by the irreplaceable Ricky Cheno. And thanks to H-Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza and this is 20 Square Blocks. <laughs>